everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Hey everybody, lots of you coming in here. Thank you so much for being on board. Um, we are in our fifth or sixth, I'm almost forgetting the week, of a series with Mark Shepard on restoration agriculture and specifically forest ecology. We're not going to take a whole lot of his time here, but we're going to give a couple of just introductory things. Um, one, on the Facebook page, Please, um, if you want to be on and you're not yet, ask me, send me an email, um, and you can find that email address on the Economic Action Team website, which also, if you're not a member yet, and you'll know that because you wouldn't have gotten an invite, again, ask me about that and I'll get you one. If this is the first time you've been on a webinar, you won't probably have be a member yet, and right after this tonight, I'll be making you members. So you'll get an invitation, you'll get a login number, and you'll be a member. And because when you are that, you're going to get um, replays. We just lost you, Mark, visually. We lost your webcam. Did it come um, back? Well, yeah, I had to shut that off because it told me to because my computer's overheating. Ah, okay. Well, they they like to see your 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 good face, but we we we're just appreciating your voice and your screen. Um, so uh, let's see, what other announcement? Uh, a couple people have had trouble getting into the webinars because of links, and I think, I think what might be happening is that when we started doing these, we were doing them one webinar at a time, and you would get a link for a given webinar, and the next one would be different, and the next one would be different. Starting about three weeks ago, we started a whole series, and I think there were 30 in it, and there's 26 left after tonight. And if you register now, if you use that link, you can use it forever now into the, those, the rest of the 30. So that's into December. Um, and we'll worry about, we'll, we'll get the next one at that point. But if you, didn't, if you weren't able to get in before, you're, you're in now probably, so this isn't it for you. But a lot of people listen to this recording. So we'll get that. Lastly, as you have questions, put them in your question bar. We've got a couple staff members here that will help figure them out and find them. Mark will either answer them when he goes along, if he's, he sees them too at times, um, and he'll answer them then, or he'll answer them at the end. And I'm going to just turn it over to him and let him fly. All yours, Mark. Yeah. All right. Just, uh, just to let you know uh, that the computer is extremely hot. I can no longer touch it, so I've put it on the dashboard. If it cuts out, we know that there's major troubles with my laptop. And, and, and if, you and do if have it does, Mark, if it does, you're still going to be able to talk. I'll just take back over the screen and I'll start doing the slides. So. Oh, that'll be cute. Okay, great. And and if you do have questions on the fly, go ahead and ask a question. And if I see them in the question box, then I can uh, I can incorporate them into what I'm talking about. Uh, once again, welcome everybody. Uh, thank you for being here. I'm going to fly through the introductory part because every week we get new people, and I just want to make sure everybody has their context uh, for what we're talking about here. Some of my original inspiration was, of course, Tree Crops by J. Russell Smith. It was the first time I ever read the two words together in the same sentence, permanent and agriculture. The whole thesis intrigued me. Why not uh, raise uh, woody crops that produce seed 
And we can do that as an upper story and raising those seeds to feed livestock. Since 50% uh, of the uh, annual grains and legumes in his day were fed to livestock, now 80% is fed to livestock. Um, and whoever has their speaker on really loud, I'm hearing myself double feedback through other people's computers. It's either Wayne or Stephanie. So the same still applies today. We can we can raise livestock feed from trees. I don't necessarily enjoy the flavor of honey locusts, uh, but a pig does, and I like pork. Uh, we're uh, taking a lot of our uh, background information from college-level textbooks. I uh, attended Unity College in Maine, where I studied ecology. Uh, these are some of the updated versions. Um, doing a lot more research these days on uh, on restoration ecology, not just forest ecology. And then, of course, I can't give any presentation. I just think this way now. I can't give any presentation without thinking about permaculture design. As we are human beings and we are designing uh, ecological systems, we are designing human habitats, which includes the, the, the biological, it includes the, uh, the built environment, it includes the, uh, the social structures, the e economic structures behind it. And as uh, Uncle Bill himself, he's the man who signed my diploma. I follow his outline when I'm teaching permaculture. That's why I'm not calling this a permaculture course, because I'm teaching forest ecology, but I'm doing it through the lens of uh, uh, permaculture design. Everything I do, I'm thinking about designing uh, habitats. Because after all, the aim is to create systems that are ecologically sound and economically profitable. And, and think about those two phrases right there. Economically sound, ecologically profitable. That's ecolonomics. Wow, have anybody ever heard of that word before? Wow, I, like I, it. I, like it. I, I muted myself, but I had to throw, yeah, wow, thank you, Mark. <laughs> so, uh, and of course, it's based on an ethic. I always act out of care for the earth and care for people. And how we, how we do this is we have to do it in such a way that uh, somehow goods and services, materials uh, are exchanged fairly. What that means uh, is different in different places, in different contexts, different cultures, etc. There has to be some sort of way that we human beings can help one another to meet our, our basic needs uh, and be fair to one another and not, not to uh, <laughs> make other people's lives miserable or non-existent because we lived our own. Uh, permaculture is unfolded on the planet through a, a set of principles. And uh, one of the first expositions of the principles are set out by David Holmgren here. Uh, observe, imitate, and interact. Well, now, by doing a presentation, a course on forest ecology, we're basically going through step number one, first and foremost. If we are going to observe nature, imitate it, and interact with it, we have to understand a little bit of how that works. And so that's what forest ecology uh, is all about, is understanding uh, our planet and the, the plant communities that live on our planet, even if where we live is dominated by grass or uh, non-living material, such as uh, very uh, dry desert areas. The rules of forest ecology, uh, the rules of ecology apply everywhere on the planet. Um, we're just calling it forest ecology because in most circumstances, uh, most permaculturists, most restoration agriculturists are relying quite heavily on woody perennial plants. And throughout all of our series, we'll be going through all these different permaculture principles over time. And these are some with, with Mollison. Once again, 
observe and imitate nature, interact with it, accept feedback, and then to work with nature rather than fight against it. Uh, I just actually got off the phone with a gentleman um, from eastern United States who's a permaculture designer, and he's going around teaching um, workshops on plant guilds, and he's having some struggles getting these guilds to establish. And in permaculture, we're supposed to invent these families of plants that live together and work together synergistically. And, you know, permaculturists have this goal that we have to discover this and learn this. No, we don't. That's why we observe nature. That's why we imitate nature. And he was actually taken aback a little bit because, because we've known each other for so long, he was able to take a deep breath and say, wow, I, I never bothered to actually look at what plants actually live together. And can you believe that? We're supposed to observe and imitate nature, number one principle. And, and a, a leading permaculture teacher hasn't even bothered to look to see what plants live together. And of course, uh, on the water management side of things, we know of uh, plants that can survive with you know, quite a few different uh, soil nutrient deficiencies. None of them that we know of can live without water. And from the Yeoman's book, Water for Every Farm, we get this a little protocol, step one through eight. Uh, the, we start with the things when we're designing our system that, that we have the least amount of direct changeover, and we gradually get down towards the one that uh, we have the most changeover. And if any of you involved in agriculture, especially organic agriculture, it's like all they talk about is the soil. The soil, the soil, the soil. Add this, you know, mix this, compost that. It's about the life. It's about the minerals. It's about the tilth. Uh, well, time out. The soil is the last thing we need to worry about. Really, it is. We have one through seven that, that take more of an investment of our time and our energy and our labor. And once we make that change, the rest falls into place a lot better. So once we do one through seven, uh, number eight uh, kind of starts to fall into place. Uh, moved from uh, Alaska after going to uh, college for ecology in Maine, moved to Alaska for eight years, moved to southwest Wisconsin, uh, built this cute little place, off-grid, wind and solar, roof water catchment, and uh, you know built this little farm in the middle of corn and soybean country, and uh, wrote a book. If nothing else, I was just trying to like let everybody know what the heck I was doing. I was tired of explaining myself over and over again because what I was doing didn't look like other permaculturists work and so this this explains uh, what I've done what I'm doing and what we're all here for and I've got a little abbreviated protocol in there as we start by identifying our biome and its keystone plant communities that's what we're doing right now at this course we do our earthworks woody polycultures and so on and so on similar to the uh, yeoman's protocol but shortened all right so we're going to start with a little bit of review of last week. The forest, a three-dimensional ecological system dominated by trees or shrubs, woody vegetation. And it exists in a constantly changing, dynamic system, interacting the earth and the air and the biology. Uh, it's a constantly moving, highly complex. It's not necessarily complicated, but it's very complex. And it's never the same, always changing. And just because a forest isn't there now doesn't mean that one won't grow there. Uh, this actually, uh, I'm not exactly sure where it is. Um, I was trying to find uh, some pictures of like Scottish moors and the rolling haifs of the, of the UK because that was all once upon a time covered by the Caledonian forest, a rich three-dimensional, you know, multi-species, layers thick, uh, forested, and grassed 
uh, ecosystem uh, where humans live. So just because it doesn't have trees there now doesn't mean it won't grow one. We need to observe a whole bunch of things before we actually uh, set out to design a forest. Designing a forest or a, a human habitat on a place like this would be different than designing uh, on other places. This bare black dirt here is hardly a forest. Uh, people say, well, it's, it's, you know, it's not an ecological system. Well, it is an ecological system. This is a highly disturbed early successional site. This has had some sort of disturbance that has wiped out the vegetation all the way down to the bare black dirt. This isn't really early stage. This is not what's called primary succession. We saw a little bit of primary succession in earlier uh, sessions. Primary succession is when you're starting with the bare bones, bedrock of the planet. This is actually well along the way. It's already had some sort of uh, rich perennial ecological system for eons because it's the uh, biological systems that actually create the soil. So this soil in this farm picture was all created by, look in the background, probably some sort of forested field interface uh, ecological biological system. <clears throat> Contour farm in, uh, uh, this is in the USA, I forgot, I had it on notes somewhere and I don't remember where it was. This has actually had its water managed. This is a, also an early successional forest. Go back to this one. This doesn't quite yet have plants established. One of the first steps of uh, the secondary succession, once we actually do have soil and it's been disturbed, are the annual rank annual weeds. And if we think about our, our grain crops and our legume crops, they're rank annual weeds. You put the seed in the ground, they grow like crazy, they produce a prodigious amount of seed, they put their, their root carbon in the ground, they put their, you know, their bodies in the ground, and they put out these really hard, dry seeds that can persist for a long, 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 long time because what would happen in a natural system, those annual seeds would fall to the ground, but that plant being there has already changed the system conditions so it's not as favorable for that plant. Again, let's take thistles, for example. If you got thistle seed that hits this ground, it's going to grow like crazy. It's a biennial, makes a floret one year, and then a big tall spike the second year with all these flowers. Well, when that thistle seed hits the ground, it's got to hit bare black dirt soil or it won't germinate. It'll just sit there for a long, 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 long time until that soil is exposed again. Some seeds are stimulated to germinate by light. Other seeds are stimulated to germinate by water. Uh, and specifically water of a certain pH. Certain seeds are stimulated to germinate by certain uh, chemicals dissolved in that water, so uh, acidic water versus alkaline water or enough magnesium or shortage of, of some other uh, soluble mineral will cause different seeds to sprout at different times. That's the first step of secondary succession. So our annual agriculture is permanently uh, and stuck in um, early stage secondary succession where we're relying uh, predominantly on annual plants for the seeds that we then eat ourselves or feed to our livestock. We can grow trees there. Obviously we can grow trees there because they're growing in the background. We can grow them here. What kind of trees? Well, we'll talk more about that. I like food, so I focus on food trees. Let's manage our water. This is also early stage successional uh, agroforestry system. One of the terms that we used uh, a week ago, I think it was, was physiognomy. I like it because it's fun to say, for one. 
but it's uh, what the physiognomy when talking about a, a forested ecosystem is it's the structural appearance of a forest. Uh, the the look, when you look at this particular picture right here, I mean, these are crazy, goofy-looking baobab-type trees, wide open space, lots of exposed uh, soil underneath, a lot of thorny plants, uh, some succulent cacti-type plants. The physiognomy uh, of, a, of a forested ecosystem is determined primarily by the climate and the soil type. Uh, if you go to... Uh, the middle of a desert area, let's go to the Sonora Desert in northern Mexico. And if you try to start a food forest, what you're doing is instead of observing reality, which is the Sonoran Desert, uh, and what it looks like, the physiognomy of the actual planet where you are, uh, you're taking a concept, which is an idea invented in our own little minds, and then you take this concept and you lay it on the planet, and then you wonder why it doesn't work. Because I read this book here, and it told me, told me to put down the cardboard mulch and this other kind of mulch, and then I plant all these trees, and I got this little forest going. See, just like, you know, uh, northeastern Maine. Well, no. The, the structural appearance of forested ecosystems around this planet are basically determined by climate. There's only so much, like this one right here, there's only so much water available. You can take it up with 10 million itty-bitty plants, you know, half a million medium-sized plants, or even fewer large plants, and fewer and fewer plants. So if, if you're going to be planting woody plants into a system where water is your biggest limiting factor, uh, you will want to make sure that through time you do not have too many plants. Now here I am, I'm Mr. High Density. I like having way tons of plants, so we have the genetic uh, var variation that we can uh, use to our advantage and find new varieties that will be more adapted. What you can't do, though, is you can't let a high-density planting in the Sonora Desert, for example, stay high-density forever. If you don't start thinning trees out, um, they'll, they'll get thinned out, sometimes catastrophically, because you use all that surface moisture and then all of your tree plantings die. Look around. The way ecosystems look where you live right now, that's a pretty close approximation of the look that we're looking for when we're designing a woody uh, food producing system. Quick, if quick you, interruption, Mark, quick interruption, yeah. just because it's relevant for now, and you weren't there, but Monday as I was talking about what kinds of species we should put into an aquaculture system, the primary thing that I said should be thought of is, is the, ex the example of uh, instead of, of the, uh, all the physiognomy that you talked about for soils and for land, the physiognomy that's important in water is temperature um, because that's what varies in different places. And it, it'll, it'll, you can't grow trout in, um, in the Sahara because the water temperature won't, and, and even as much as you might want to. So anyway, it, it's interesting because people don't think of it that way often, that there's that much uh, ecological mimicry required. So, and 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 that's I'm glad that you brought that up because it uh, it's not necessarily required, and I'll go into this later on tonight. But if if you go ahead and you try to do something that's not in sync with what your place wants to do, you've now created an expense. You're now not working with nature; you're working against it. Because if the water in the Sonora Desert wants to be 85 degrees constantly throughout the year, you can't grow trout. Well, yes, you can, but you need a refrigerator and a coolant system and all the energy involved with that. And yes, you can, and I'll show a picture later. Yes, you can grow bananas 
encircle Alaska, but at what cost? And is that really a permanent agriculture just because you're using a, a woody plant? Now, if you look at this situation here, the, everybody you know can see this, and you just you can you can almost taste the moisture. This is a humid, uh, and it's a it's a tropical subtropical environment. If you plant this type of structure in a situation like this, it will not be successful. If you live in a place like this, this is the type of system that you're looking for eventually. Now, of course, later on, we're going to do some water management, so we'll be able to take uh, the water that does fall on a site, concentrate it a little bit to get uh, higher productivity in certain places, but as a whole, we're not really going to be able to violate nature's rules because we can't necessarily create any more water uh, than is falling out of the sky. We can change where it moves and we can change its concentration. Now that said, there is evidence out there that, and, and I've actually been in, in situations where this is a case, and uh, it's happening all across Africa actually, when you increase the, uh, the forest cover, the vegetation cover, in an area that has been denuded, it actually increases uh, evapotranspiration and creates new storms. Um, some of the uh, research being done at the, at the UN was presented at the COP21 climate conference last winter was showing the, the rainfall patterns uh, that appear after the planting of large swaths of trees in Africa and they were able to track where the increased rainfall would happen very accurately. So now they're uh, working with a couple, especially Egypt is doing a lot of work with this. Instead of just planting trees all over their place, they're looking at other countries in the proper wind direction and say, hey, we're going to fund the planting of trees over on your part of the uh, world here because that's going to create more humidity in the air, which falls as rain over here. So yeah, if you try to, if you try to plant this kind of forest here, it won't be successful. And these species, now we're back to um, uh, different limits. Um, these species here, uh, hot um, tropical plants. Uh, we got bananas thrown in, the big broadleaf ones are bananas. The ones on the ground uh, look like, uh, uh, there's actually this big vining bean, and I forgot, it's, uh, it's used primarily as an animal feed. It's a shade tolerant. Uh, and it'll it'll uh, survive on very little uh, very little rainfall. These species here will not survive here in Alaska. Um, this is once again the uh, gateway to to my homestead up in Alaska. Here, we need to imitate the structure. Yeah, that's the physical appearance, the the physiognomy. We need to imitate the 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 structure of our place with our structures when we do these designs, not just come up with some crazy random design because we feel like it and it's artistic. And then we need to select the species that are actually adapted to those places within reason because we all are also going to be involved in breeding, forward breeding. Uh, let's take my case, uh, for example, with uh, chestnuts. Um, chestnuts basically don't grow in southwest Wisconsin. It's too cold. The, Chinese chestnuts freeze to the ground. American chestnut was never native to uh, southwest Wisconsin. So, of course, yeah, I'm going to bring those in. Uh, not because they're most likely to succeed, but because they're very close cousins to oaks. They're related to oaks. And uh, I got my source material from zones really nearby the conditions where I'm at. So instead of going to this place in Alaska and bringing in coffee and cocoa 
and bananas, uh, I would start with things like, which I did, uh, butternut, pinion pine. And pinion pine, not from Southern California, but from uh, uh, Northern Montana high altitude uh, pinion pine to see if I can get them to grow up there. So we can, we can nibble at the edges of different climactic zones with species that we, peak, uh, we pick, but not, uh, we can't make a dramatic shift uh, and grow something that's totally out of whack. Yeah, you wouldn't want to grow saguaro cactus out here. Imitate, look at the shape of that too. This is a heavy snow area. Uh, it's actually not too exposed to wind because you don't see a lot of wind flagging with the trees. They would have all the branches pushed in one direction. But this is a very, very cold, uh, heavy snow area right here. You pick different species and obviously plant them in a different shape. And uh, last week we talked a lot about the, uh, the different um, ecoregions, the world's ecoregions. And what's really amazing is although there's different classification systems of these ecoregions around the world from looking at the soils to the, uh, to the geological structure to looking at the plant communities, it's amazing how close they track to one another. They're all very, very, very similar. And if you try to go too far out of your uh, eco-climactic zone, you won't have much success. And since what we want to do is create permanent agriculture, you know, permanent perennial ecosystems, habitats for human beings and culture, we might as well get our food systems in the ground working fairly stress-free all by themselves. Then we can go play with things like plant breeding and microclimate management. Imitate the large patterns first. Okay, so we look at these large patterns across the world. We got everything from tropical rainforest to tropical semi-deciduous scrub woodland and so on and so on. Now these categories on the left in that little box, we, we went from, you know, overall big planet. We can tell that, like, that's cold because it's got snow and ice. You know, we can tell that that's hot because it's got tropical plants. That's a very wide angled lens. And that's not really accurate enough for us to do good, uh, careful design. So then, of course, I recommend imitating the, the, the shape, the structure, the physiognomy of your place, and get really close to the species selection. And this gets a little bit closer. Do we, what is, where we lived, was it a former savanna system? Is it a prairie system? Was it tundra, steppe, you know, montane forest, conifer forest, etc.? So, okay, let's, Wherever you are right now, wherever you're listening, look on this map, see where you're located. This is the historical terrestrial biomes of your place. And let's, uh, where I am right now, I am at a place in the pink. It says middle latitude, deciduous forest, and mixed forest. So that means probably a little bit of mix of conifers, which are up to the north, the, uh, the uh, boreal forest to the north. And mixed also probably means there's grasslands thrown in there because grassland is a phase in forest succession after disturbance. So what you would do is now go to that little pink area. If you can see my cursor, I hope you can. Um, and then if you're, if you're really bored and you can't find enough species to feed yourself over here, you want more creative outlet, you can look for these other pink species or this pink, pink zones over here or pink zones over here and then start moving, um, moving species back and forth. And what I've found fascinating, it's only been in the past five years or so that I've gotten to do a lot of travel around the world, um, I'm amazed at how similar the species are here, here, and here. The, the similar regions on different continents 
have the, have the same plants. They're basically the same plants with just subtle variations. The chestnuts in Europe are different than the chestnuts in China, which are different from the chestnuts in uh, North America, and so on. So we're getting a little closer, dialing in on what our what our uh, our region is like. And remember, of course, elevation, especially you folks in the Rockies, you know this. The higher up you go, the colder it gets. Going up in elevation on mountainsides is the same thing as going north. Uh, every thousand feet vertically is equivalent to 300 miles northwards. And so, if you're, you know, at, at 8,000 feet, like uh, Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture Institute in Basalt, Colorado, they're basically the same climate as, you know, mid-latitude British Columbia almost. And so, here's 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 the example. This is a uh, uh, Circle Hot Springs in Alaska. Yes, you can grow bananas. And down here in the lower right are figs. Yes, you can grow bananas and figs in Circle Hot Springs, Alaska. And yes, if you have uh, hot springs, you ever hear that? Hello, Circle Hot Springs. You drill a hole into the ground and you put a pipe in it and you have heat. And then you buy steel and plastic that you import from the lower 48. Uh, and you're within an hour of Fairbanks, Alaska, one of the larger cities in Alaska, still not that very big. You have a market for you know, locally grown bananas in January. That formula works as long as the system is in place that allows the pipes to not fall apart, the plastic be manufactured, to be shipped up from the lower 48, have businesses in the lower 48 that are buying raw materials from Saudi Arabia, which is, of course, our oil to make our plastic, and all this infrastructure has to be in place. Or you could have gone up and you could have imitated the local a native natural ecosystem and just stood back and watch it as it grows and evolves and changes through time and you eat it. Drought tolerance is probably a pretty good idea in this picture. Um, who, let's see if I can see comments here. I see some, yeah, who, who knows what plants these are? If anybody can answer real quick in the comments. Um, these are date palms and what's really fascinating, they, they tolerate a tremendous amount of heat and they also tremendous uh, tremendous amount of dry. Obviously, it's very dry here. But uh, what I found fascinating in, in working in Africa, right at the equator, is date palms really don't grow. They can they can uh, grow and survive uh, where I've been working, but they don't set fruit. Um, and I've been told that it's because they don't get enough chilling hours. It's like what? You mean dates have to have the same or similar chilling hours as Egypt and Libya? Cool. I thought I thought like apples that need to go down to like 30 degrees for you know a couple of months needed chilling hours, or or stone fruit need chilling hours. But dates, Egypt chilling hours. Anyways, so drought tolerance is is very important in a situation like that. And yes, again, we can change the uh, uh, shape of the of the ground to concentrate water. <clears throat> and yet, drought tolerance is totally unnecessary here. This is uh, Plitvicka jezera in uh, Croatia where uh, uh, almost ice cold um, it's uh, water that's super saturated with calcium comes bubbling up out of the ground coming right through the dolomite uh, limestone bedrock and when it when it um, comes out of the ground the pressure drops uh, and the uh, some of the calcium in solution comes out of solution and so it makes these big terraces all over the place that look like uh, Mammoth Hot Springs at uh, Yellowstone. And the calcium terraces keep building up and building up and building up. 
and there's all kinds of weird wild plants that only grow in places like that. Um, you need to understand, you just observe the place where you're at and, and don't get stuck on some idea. This one of my favorite clients, um, he's actually, he lives in um, uh, Cherry Grove, uh, Illinois, and after taking a, taking a course with me, he was, he was a retired um, uh, auto a worker, worked in the, in the factories. He decided to get into farming, but the reason the workshop with me is, is my wife wants to grow you know, this kind of peach in this part of northern Illinois, and the darn thing keeps dying. And she wants to grow peaches, and I'm here to learn how to grow peaches. And so his name is uh, Richard. It's like, oh, Richard, you know, maybe what that place is telling you is that's not the place to grow peaches. What you would do here is imitate your local system, you know, look at your local native plant communities, but I want to grow peaches. I want to grow peaches. He's been farming now, I think, for six or eight years as as his economy. Um, he supplies a couple of different um, roadside stands, and he has his own little CSA going on. And guess what? He doesn't have any peaches. Grow what likes to grow there. And, uh, you know, this is where I get into, uh, I, I don't get into arguments because I don't argue it's like, what do they say? Don't don't um, wrestle with pigs because you both get covered with manure and the pigs have a good time. It's like the same thing. Don't don't mess with the tar baby because you get stuck and you can't clean it off and all that kind of stuff. Soil really, when you're talking about woody plants, is an afterthought. Soil is something that we can change so fast, so quickly, and even after we've changed it so fast, so quickly, it can go change again just as quickly. If you go ahead and you do a soil test, uh, an Albrecht soil test, and you balance those minerals perfectly, what's going to happen is all of a sudden the life in the soil is just going to perk right up. And once all the soil life is active and alive, the plant life is going to change. And all of the interactions between the, the, the um, soil food web and the plants themselves are going to create all these chemical exudates and excretions and it's going to change the soil again. You do another soil test, and the soil is different. All is changing. However, if we go all the way back to those eco, uh, bio-eco regions, uh, the, the biology of a region really isn't going to change much. You've got, a, you've got a, a suite of species that are going to thrive in your place um, almost effortlessly. Focus on those first. Get the systems in place then work on the soil. We can work on the soil. Because if trees really needed soil, they wouldn't be growing in places like this. This is a, um, a little azalea growing on the easternmost peninsula of Isle Royal up in Lake Superior. And uh, this little azalea uh, is grown in a, a tuft. That tuft of grass down to the left is probably no bigger around than my hand. And the, the tuft of grass is in a crack it's, it's no deeper than two inches deep. So it's a little tiny water pocket that lichens, you can see the lichens the upper corner got established. They, they died. They decompose. Uh, the grass can get established. It dies. It decomposes. You can see the, the brown grass lying down decomposing. It's enough soil for this little plant to grow, but it's not enough soil for that plant to really crank and turn into a redwood overnight. It's got to go slowly, one cell at a time. And it's on an extremely exposed site. The winds are, are, are ferocious. Uh, there's ice heave as uh, Lake Superior uh, freezes up in the wintertime. 
and the wind blows in one direction, sometimes entire huge ice sheets can come pushing onto the shore, and and this little vegetation, try as it might, maybe this is like 100, 200 years old possibly. It's possible that that is that old. Um, here comes an ice sheet and just scrapes it all off and has to start again. This is a really harsh site, and the plant responded accordingly. Uh, and here's another one. It almost looks like that little juniper tree is standing straight up out of the rocks. It's not. It's laying down flat. It's completely flat on the rocks. And notice, where's the soil at the base of that tree? Most people have seen trees growing straight out of the rocks. When we're dealing with woody plants, they don't have the same relationship with soil as annual plants do. Now, I don't know all of the reasons why, and I don't necessarily care, because what I want to do is I want to create ecosystems, ecologically sound and economically profitable. And think about this. If I go out there and I grow number two dent corn and I have to add fertilizer and calcium every single year, year after year after year after year, and I have to get rid of the weeds, either with herbicide or tillage, uh, year after year, I have to plow the ground or burn it down. That's a lot of work to get number two dent corn, which isn't much nutrition, and the government has to pay you money because you lose money. Or I can go out on a little rock in the middle of Lake Superior, drop a seed in the crack, and, and pick little juniper berries off that to flavor my gin drink forever without any work at all. If we imitate what works in your area, we can create systems that are ecologically sound and economically profitable. In part, they're economically profitable because we have hardly any expenses. Now, what also changes or affects the physiognomy of a place is uh, another term that's kind of important that so I'll throw around by accident every once in a while, not even though I say it, but it's important that we, uh, we have an understanding of it. All natural systems, um, you know, all plant communities, animal communities as well, are uh, affected in their, their appearance, their structure, their, their physiognomy is um, affected by the frequency, how often, and the type of disturbance event that happens. Now, by disturbance events, it can mean a whole bunch of different things, but look in this picture right here. In the background, we have what looks like a fairly a closed canopy forest. We have agricultural land. That's a disturbance. Somebody must have cleared off closed canopy forest or maybe cleared off this, uh, you know, semi-open uh, wood pasture system is what they would call this in Europe. Uh, and plowed ground, grew an annual crop that then is either harvested already in this picture or uh, about to be harvested. So that site right there where the cursor is in the middle of the screen has been highly disturbed compared to this uh, closed canopy forest back here. Well then from the annual plant system, now we've got like some perennials, we've got grasses, and we get coarse, some coarse woody material coming in. Uh, this is various uh, disturbances cause this opening. Some kind of disturbance caused that opening and now it's growing back from that disturbance. It could be plowing. It could be uh, fire. It could be grazing, and I'll show pictures of all those. One of the things with our, our woody plant system, when we start uh, concentrating on using a lot of woody plants, our, you know, woody food plants in our systems, um, a community of woody plants will behave differently if undisturbed. Um, they will behave differently in different systems, or different regions. Uh, let's go back to this region here. See closed canopy forest in the background in a disturbance. Here it's growing back from a disturbance. What happens at first, uh, you saw the plowed ground earlier, 
the natural succession takes place, there's, there's zero plant species on a plowed piece of ground. Then really rapidly it's colonized by annual plants, and then the next year there'll be annuals and biannuals, then there'll be annuals, biannuals, and perennials. As time goes on, there's a, there's a species uh, diversification that happens in, in early secondary succession, and the site becomes more and more species diverse. If all of a sudden you do not disturb that system, and it's in an arid environment, it'll go through a phase that all of a sudden hits this maximum uh, species diversity phase, and then it starts to close the canopy. Once it closes the canopy, light uh, starts to uh, limit the growth of ground-growing plants, and grasses start to disappear and die. Uh, water starts to be taken up by the larger, more aggressive, well-rooted plants. And if you have a dry, arid area, and you have a, a, a highly diverse system that you've set up, and you don't disturb it, it will eventually devolve, it'll deteriorate into a scrub chaparral type uh, scrubby shrubby desert. Um, there will be a uh, fewer species, less species diversity uh, through time if it's undisturbed. It can be maintained in a disturbed state and, and keep that species diversity, you'll also have a higher productivity. By productivity, I'm using the ecological meaning of the term, and this is, this is photosynthetic productivity. If you have a, a woody system that you establish uh, in an arid environment, do not disturb it. Eventually, it will deteriorate, become less species diverse, uh, and it will turn into a scrubby type situation. Or if you're in a very humid uh, environment, I'm in the uh, northeastern U.S. right now, and if you walk away from a place, you don't aggressively fight back the trees, they come in, they close the canopy, grass disappears, the ground layer disappears. You've got a closed canopy forest for a long period of time. You know, the uh, old-growth forests, you know, quote-unquote old-growth forests, when the Europeans first got to this continent, uh, were all basically 400, 500-ish years old. Uh, that was a, a release event. These, uh, the woody plants in North America were kind of held at bay by frequent burning by um, Native Americans for at least you know 12, 13,000 years into the past, and of course natural fires, lightning strikes, and so on. But as soon as the white man's diseases all showed up, wiped out you know 90% of the population in the Americas, uh, all of these trees were released. Well, in the Great Plains, where uh, water was somewhat of a limiting factor. Fire would be more frequent. It was maintained primarily as a grassland. In the humid east, where there was plenty of water, the canopy closed, the, the grasses uh, disappeared in large part, and they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't maintain ground fires, and so eventually you get a closed canopy humid forest. So we just have to understand these are two different time trajectories based on the, uh, the climate of your area, is if you're in an arid area, you uh, you will have the most species diversity if you maintain that canopy at 30 to 50 percent canopy closure, so you can still have grasses growing underneath uh, and a whole host of plants stacked in various different layers. In an arid environment, you're going to have fewer layers. Right here, you're going to have way fewer layers uh, at your disposal than you will here. So if you've read a book that says you have to have seven different layers in your in your food forest, and you try to do it here, you're not going to have as much success as you would here. 
And I don't know why people get fixated on, oh, it has to have four distinct layers, three distinct layers, seven layers. Like, I don't care what the number is. I want to have a system that works for me, is ecologically in balance, and has as many layers as my area will support or support. Another disturbance, of course, fire. Um, this is a crown fire. This, is, uh, this one's gotten a little bit out of hand. If you live in more arid uh, environments and you do have fire as part of the uh, natural history of your place, it's not a bad idea to imitate that somehow, either with controlled burns or with mowing. Uh, one of the things that is in your best interest in a, uh, in a more arid environment is to remove what are called ladder fuels. Look at some of those taller trees in the uh, mid-ground there, the three tall ones. Uh, when conifers especially, when they grow uh, taller, the lower branches are not as uh, not shade tolerant all that much. So the lower branches will begin to die. If you live in an area like that, remove those lower branches, put them in, in uh, piles, perhaps in linear rows on contour or slightly off a contour, then bury them in some soil. Now they act as like a hugel culture berm to help you with your water management strategy and it's and they'll decompose because they're in contact with the soil in an area where he's got a ditch to collect the water. Um, now I get a little biological sponge there. It'll be more moist and more humid and you won't have these ladder fuels that allow the fire to climb from the grass up the tree on those little fine fuels and catch the crowns on fire. Once you get into the crown fire situation, um, what I was told, I was actually a forest firefighter when I was up in Alaska. What I was told, what you really do is you, you get down on your hands and knees, you put your head between your legs, and you kiss your sorry ass goodbye. But that's a different story. Another way to, to uh, disturb your ecosystem is with uh, the use of animals. And at least for the last 95 million years, according to some books, the last 6,000 years, according to other books, uh, mammals have been the dominant uh, plant-eating creatures on this planet. And wherever the mammals go, they change their environment. Much of the uh, Pleistocene uh, land physiognomy was uh, savanna, whether it was nearer the ice and it was a cold uh, steppe type environment with this uh, taiga, sparse, uh, sparse trees, short trees with grasses underneath it, or if it was even in the tropics, there are tropical savannas that would have been maintained by like the three, four, five, seven different species of camelids. Wayne, how many species of camelid are there? There's vicunas and llamas and alpacas and what else? Camels, obviously. Um, right, yep. And, uh, not very many more, actually. Um, okay. There's a number that are extinct, but um, you've gotten most of them. So. Yeah, yeah, so that, that's another thing. Wouldn't that be cool to like have camels in there uh, grazing with your cattle? So these are cattle... Uh, I, on, on our farm in southwest Wisconsin, I was imitating primarily the oak savanna biome, and I selected those species accordingly, and there's motorcycles driving by. And then I managed it with cattle because I don't have mastodon and I don't have bison. Of course, disturbance is, is chainsaws, uh, landslide, earthquake. Here's a, here's a different, different types of cutting have a different type of effect. Not all... Uh, not all tree removal is the same. You know, this is like removing one or two trees at a time. This is what's called a seed tree harvest, where you go and you cut uh, a certain amount of the merchantable chip timber and you leave other trees behind. There are certain species of tree that are 
one, dependent on fire. They have to be burned or else they won't release their seed. Jack pine is a classic with those in the upper Midwest. Other trees require a full sun, and they will only grow on a site like this right here. Um, and so there's a lot, of, a lot of pines that actually thrive better when they have a wide open site and they're clear cut, and they come up as a thick stand altogether. <clears throat> Obviously, there's a different effect to the logging on the right-hand side of this island than on the left-hand side of the island. And I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. What I'm saying is that as land managers, what we need to do is understand that disturbance is a part of our, eco our ecological systems. Different disturbances will cause the biota, the plants, and the animal communities to behave differently. All of these systems will behave differently. And it's our job to learn and understand how our systems behave with various different types of disturbance. Now that is a, this is a classic example of this tree, uh, where's the soil? I mean, that is a, that's a seriously, seriously disturbed site. All right, just once again, we're looking at our broad swath biomes. All of these biomes on the planet are impacted by disturbance. Obviously, uh, drier areas, one of the disturbances is prolonged drought. Uh, California, how many years in a row without rain sometimes? It, uh, I read recently that there was a period of time that they went like 300 years without any noticeable rain. You know, this is like a, however they figured that out, I don't know. Now we're going to zoom in a little bit. The current cover types in, uh, I don't know what year this would have been. Now you look down at the little key on the left. Where do you live? If you're in the U.S., I apologize to our New Zealanders who are, are possibly listening tonight. I know there was a uh, someone from Ghana and then uh, Uganda looking, um, find out what are the vegetation types in your area. If you're in the red, don't try growing purple in the red. It won't do as well. We zoom in a little bit closer. Now we start to get, last week we talked about types, forest types. Uh, this is, this is the, the, bio, the biological uh, way of defining a region um, described by its, its biology. And this is early vegetation. This is a classic one that uh, I think it's Curtis that actually wrote this down. And it really was. It was like a July 14th at 4 o'clock in the afternoon when he came through our area, wrote down what he saw. And that's what restoration ecologists try to go to over and over again. That is nature. That is what it's supposed to be. It's like, well, that's what it was one day in July in 1860 or 1820, whatever. Uh, and then, of course, this is like today's map. It's either, either corn or soybeans. Yay. All right. This is where we get uh, really hardcore down to details. There, are, uh, there is one for Minnesota, Wisconsin. Somebody contacted me on Facebook. They found their version for Michigan. I was just talking with a guy today. They've got one um, about Cape Cod that's very specific. Uh, probably there's one uh, or more texts about the natural communities of your region uh, in the USA. Since we're one of the last continents to be uh, conquered and explored by uh, Europeans who like to write things down, this continent actually has extraordinarily good records of here and what has been here all along. And uh, these books are simple to read. Uh, working with a fellow who's now setting up a curricula for fifth and sixth graders that they go through this because each chapter is only like three or four pages. You look like page, you know, 49 to 54, 45 to 49. These now different forest types. 
this is for Wisconsin, but where you live, there are similar texts. You may have to look deeper than just finding a book like I did. Southern Oak Forest. Notice that, that the, the types, the, the plant communities, are labeled by the dominant, largest, longest-lived woody plant there. That's because that, that plant will chemically change the soil with root exudates, with leaf drippings, with you know shade. The, the chemistry of that site will change. So if you're in an area where it's southern oak forest, if you're not compatible with oak as a plant, you can't live there. If you're not compatible with walnut, you can't live in an area that's walnut. So uh, sugar maple, basswood, floodplains, radically different, dry pine forest. I think that's what I'm going to go into next year. White pine, northern hardwoods, forested swamps. All these describe the different plant communities, and this is like this is like the Rosetta Stone. It's it's super super easy to to set up a system that is ecologically sound. And if you go through the list, which we'll get to later, all these aquatic communities, smaller communities, uh, we can divide these regions, these uh, these uh, forest types or these uh, ecological types, smaller and smaller and smaller, till we get down to the stand level, where there's like a group of aspen or a group of white pine. I'm going to go see an old growth, about a 30-acre uh, patch of uh, old growth white pines, eight-foot diameter white pines. I'm going to go see those tomorrow. That'll be pretty cool. Then you can eventually get down to the single tree if you want to, the single creature, single cell. So like on the pine barrens here, it gives you a little bit of the ecology. How does this tend to work? You know, how does it tend to establish? Where do you tend to find these, these uh, things? A lot of clues in here, but what's really great about this is even fifth and sixth graders can understand it because it's two pages. That's all they have to read is two pages and they have a very good understanding of the long-term processes that occur in these areas. So I know there's someone here from Texas. Find out the, the plant community types in your area and just get a little bit of an understanding of how it works through time because I want all of us now to expand our time horizon to a zillion or so years in the past and then, of course, at least a few thousand years in the future, which is how long our plant systems will persist uh, once we put them in place. Last summer, um, I visited uh, Sicily and uh, went to El Castaño de Cento, de Cento Cavalli, excuse my Italian. Um, it's a tree that back in, I think it was 1100 some odd AD, uh, a, a lady was forced to marry an old man and she objected to it because she wanted to marry dad's number one guy. So she has to go off and marry this old fart. Well, she sends a text or whatever she did to dad's number one guy. Dad's number one guy comes up with 100 horses, 100 knights on horses, itching for a fight. They go up to her new home. They walk right in. They, were never, they, they, were, they figured it was going to be a big disaster. They just put her on a horse. They take off. Uh, galloping, going back home to dad, and uh, a thunderstorm comes up. They're on the eastern flank of Mount Etna, and a hundred horses pulled up underneath this tree. It's uh, it's about a 4,000-year-old chestnut tree growing on the flanks of Mount Etna, which is the most seismically active volcano on the planet. It's been exploded, earthquaked, and burned to the ground several diff different times, and it still holds the record as having the largest diameter tree trunk of any tree ever measured on planet Earth, about 75, 76 feet across. Um, so I was there last summer. We, 4,000 years that tree's been around. We're going to plant systems in the ground that are so persistent that it's going to take bulldozers and atomic weapons to get rid of them. That's sustainable agriculture. 
Well, then what's really nifty about these books, these plant community books, is all of a sudden you go down the species list. What, what we're not necessarily doing as restoration agriculture farmers, we're not doing a purist ecological restoration. What we're going to do is we're going to go to our area and we're going to very closely approximate our, our local plant communities. We're going to imitate the physiognomy. If we're in the desert, it's going to look like a desert. If we're in a humid tropical rainforest, it's going to be a tropical rainforest. And everywhere in between, we're going to imitate the appearance of our natural system because that's the shape and the form that works there for a long period of time. We're going to pick a select handful of species that will work. We know they live together because they live in these communities. Uh, we will pick the ones that provide us with the most food, fuels, medicines, building materials, special products, etc. And I like this one because right off the top, this is dry pine forest, hazelnut, ferns, blueberries, Canada mayflower, lowbush blueberry, Solomon seal, uh, huckleberries. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The first eight uh, plants that are non-trees are all food plants. So any questions? Permaculture folks, we don't have to invent natural plant communities. They're already here. And then what will happen is we'll start to see these other creatures show up, the beetles. We know what insects to expect. We know what mushrooms are going to show up. We know what mushrooms to go get spawned for to go inoculate ahead of time if we want to. It's like all of our homework is done for us. And then, of course, when it comes to the mammals, what about the large herbivores, elk, moose, deer, bison, mastodon, giant sloth, armadillo, camels, giraffes, uh, cattle, yaks, water buffalo, sheep, pigs, horses, ducks. Now we'll manage the system using these animals. This is almost a uh, natural community, almost a completely natural community. My favorite, simply because I like live here, and this was this was the plant community that like slapped me in the forehead, and I went like, "Wow! All I got to do is really observe nature, then imitate it." Huh? What a concept! You start with the fagaceae, which are oak, chestnut, or beech. Now, instead of just planting our local native red oak or white oak, why not substitute uh, the the Bucks Unlimited oak from Forest Keeling, which produces nuts at a very young age and produces every single year? Or why not use another fagaceae, which are the chestnuts, or the beech? Actually, I'm going to uh, give away my secret here. I'm up here visiting a number of different clients. Uh, right now, I'm this part of Maine. Tomorrow, I'll be going up to this part of Maine. And it's heavy in beech. Don't go out here in the Dakotas and try to grow beech. It grows over here. You'd stick with your oaks. And if you've got enough water or water management, you can try your chestnuts. So we're going to substitute. Um, in order to have preferred varieties of our plant. Apples, instead of crab apples, let's have domestic apples. Hazelnuts, instead of growing European hazels, maybe we grow beaked hazel or American hazel or the crosses between. Plums, cherry, peach, where appropriate. Uh, Richard's not growing peaches over here. Raspberries, grapes, currants, fungi, forage, and animals. And this, this is what's radically different from permaculture. Permaculture is the design of of systems that are economically sound, ecologically profitable, so said Bill Mollison, permanent agriculture. But most permaculturists that I'm aware of these days are trying to invent guilds. Uh, you have to have one of these plants. You have to have one of those plants. There's all these, it's almost like this cookie cutter rule book that really doesn't matter because all we have to do is imitate nature like both Mollison and Holmgren said originally, and we've got 
a fully complete intact ecosystem that belongs here. It's in sync with the soil. It's in sync with the rainfall patterns, the pest and disease cycles, and it produces food. And since it's a natural system, maintenance drops down to almost zero. Therefore, our marginal rate of return, which is our, our income above expenses, uh, is greater simply because our expenses sometimes are almost zero. This is just an example of a, of a clump uh, of all of these species right here, except the, uh, except the uh, animals, are all right in here. This is only a 15-foot diameter circle. You can do this in your backyard if you want. And if the, if the local zoning ordinance says you have to put black plastic edging around here and cover it with mulch, great, so be it. Do it. Just please don't use the pink stuff. This is a picture I've shown over and over again. This is in uh, southern Michigan. This is a, a savanna that's been um, non-agricultured. It has not been farmed, cut down, and plowed. And of course, the original grazing animals were these. They have a role to play in the ecosystem. They are major disturbance factors. The, uh, primarily, it's the elephants, wherever you find them on the planet, which uh, prior to human beings figuring out how to kill these things, uh, was basically everywhere except um, Antarctica. The elephants have been one of the dominant terrestrial animals keeping the landscape in a savanna semi-open phase and it's only where they weren't around for a long period of time and if there wasn't fire, so with two coincidences, no mastodon or mammoths around for a while and no fire, then you'd get closed canopy forests and then these old girls would move in and just push them over and start again. Go to the Terengiri National Park in uh, Tanzania to see elephants at work uh, decimating the forests and um, keeping it as a grassland savanna. Since I don't have elephants, what I do have is I do have a tractor with forks. See the two forks on my tractor there? I have a New Holland 40 horsepower, and I really actually do use my tractor this way with the forks. I will act as if I am an elephant, and I'll, I'll peel bark, I'll knock trees over, I'll uproot them. They're phenomenal tools for, for, uh, for tree removal. It's a lot easier than a chainsaw, too. So let's imitate large uh, herbivores. Let's imitate Cape buffalo with, you know, with uh, cows. How about warthogs? Let's substitute pigs, or instead of javelina, javelina and peccary that we have in the U.S. How about how about pigs? I just learned something recently about uh, red wattles. Red wattles are pigs are smart in the first place, but red wattles are even smarter. And if you don't get on top of training the pigs, uh, red wattles to electric fence right away with a really bad pig-frying fence, uh, they will learn to either jump over or go under. And I've seen a 50-pound red wattle pig jump three feet in the air to get over an electric fence. I can't believe it. Uh, I do believe the red wattles are being sold and they will be gone on Monday. Not interested in jumping pigs. I don't care how good they taste. Turkeys eating insects and sheep and chickens. And actually what you guys should do is uh, all stay tuned to the this here channel because um, we started on Tuesdays, I believe it is. Wayne will probably chime in at the end. Now starting to talk uh, about chicken production um, in ecological, biological systems. So that's what we're striving for. Here is a oak savanna mimic in southwest Wisconsin using alley cropping. We'll get into agroforestry practices later. Alley cropping of a high-value cash crop in the alley in between rows of trees while the trees mature. It may take 7 to 10, 12 years before chestnuts really produce a significant crop. We might as well get food short-term. This is where our annuals 
are really useful. Annual plants are a part of the economy of nature. Uh, they don't belong dominating 90% of the landscape. Or actually, it's, it's more like uh, 39. I think it's 39% of the Earth's surface is in annual grains and legumes. And that's what a farm might look like uh, from an aerial photograph in a plane. And once again, designing primarily systems that are at scale so they can be machine planted, machine harvested, machine processed, and sold as food for human beings. It's, it's nice to have our own little homesteads and gardens, but uh, the majority of people eat from machines at huge scale. As farmers and ranchers, we have a responsibility to grow enough food to feed as many people as we can. And my uh, addition to that sentence is as many people as we can within ecological constraints and ecological realities. We're going to design ecological systems to do that. There's another one, uh, the, the uh, juggling daisy. They're in the walnut family. They all produce juglones, which is a selective herbicide against certain plants. This is a particularly black walnut here. Raspberries, blackberries, currants, gooseberries. Uh, it's cold hardy. I've seen uh, black walnut growing as far north as middle Alberta, doing just fine and producing nuts. There's actually uh, uh, all across Canada, there's different, uh, in each province, there's uh, 40 acres worth of, um, it's like a, a hyper-concentrated germplasm repository that was done back in the 30s uh, that some of these are still in existence, that they took a wide spectrum of uh, genetic material from all over Canada and they put them all in Manitoba. And they took the same wide spectrum, put them in Saskatchewan. This is like a first stage selection, see which ones will work in which region. Those also exist across the USA. They're a gold mine of genetic material. And if you guys can find yours near you, find them because there's probably some really magic plants out there. Pecans are also in the Juggland AC family. They like it warmer. They have a higher water requirement. Um, pecan is one of these plants that uh, actually does have an extraordinarily wide range. In southwest Wisconsin here, they actually can survive 40 below zero winters. Obviously, they're not hitting 40 below zero in Florida. So if they're all the way down into, uh, into Mexico and as far north as almost the Arctic, we can stretch this. We can stretch east and west. The pecan should be growing all over the place. So anybody who's even close to a pecan growing area, start growing them. Gooseberries, passion fruits. I think back to Texas. Mr. Texas, if you're not growing passion uh, big time, um, you're missing the boat. It's pretty cool. Hickories. Hickories also, uh, once again, they're, they have a very wide range. I don't think they go up to Baffin Bay above, you know, up to the Arctic Circle. I think what this is uh, generated by the Canadians, what they did is if hickory occurs in that province, they just put green on the whole province. They're better on drier sites. They actually commonly partner with oak. There's, there are many forest types that are called oak hickory forest. You know, then oak hickory are the dominant trees, then they'd give a subtype of what would uh, co-host with those. So research your plant communities where you live, and you will have a whole suite. All of these are edible plants. And, I, and unfortunately for the non-USA uh, Canada people, uh, I may not have touched on your plants. But guess what? If you're in the same growing zones, eco-climactic zones that we are, you've got these same species over there. So you just substitute the ones that work for you and imitate these plant communities. I have seen, I have seen these, in, these plant communities in Europe. I've seen these plant communities in Africa. Um, uh, and of course, obviously, I've seen them all across the uh, USA. And I have a report from Alaska. I just talked to my brother today. He was out at my, uh, my homestead. 
couple weeks ago, and I do actually have two butternut trees that are still growing. They're almost 30 years old. They started with my original oh, you know, bushel or so of seed. They're approximately three and a half inches tall. So they've been able to survive 70 below zero every single winter of the year and have maybe a, maybe a month and a half summer. And so they grow like a couple of cells. They set leaves, set a bud, and then drop their leaves and start again next year. So just some examples of what it would look like. This is a this is whole in the pine family. You got our blueberries, lingonberries, serviceberries, hazelnuts. They partner with one another. In California, this is this is just a slightly different variation of the whole oak uh, family. Wherever you live, there are plant communities that if we imitate those plant communities, substitute our preferred varieties. This is a cherry over chestnut mixed with hazelnut. This is a almost natural system, 100% food. It's grazed by animals, um, highly productive, zero labor except harvest harvest the crops. Understory of, of hazelnuts under chestnut, highly productive uh, hazelnut, high density chestnut um, that eventually closes the canopy. I do have some sections that I want to close canopy because I like woods, and that's a great place for growing mushrooms. I grow lots of mushrooms out in the woods. So what uh, I wanted to start with here is, of course, this big picture and go over a few main points. We want to imitate the general structure, the physiognomy uh, of where we live with our systems, because if we don't, we're fighting against nature. Those are, those are almost firm boundaries. You know, if you don't imitate the look of where you're at, you've got a lot more work ahead of you want to select species that are that are more likely to be site adapted we can push the fringes a little like with my butternut example butternut's very cold hardy in the northeastern part of the country so why not take it to a very northwestern part of the country because it could possibly survive to have um, but don't try to grow like five zones don't try to jump like five growing zones and take coffee and bring it up to Fairbanks right away um, so imitate the physiognomy of the place uh, imitate, uh, use species that are selected, find preferred varieties when, when you can, uh, improve varieties using you know, a modified mass selection breeding, which we'll go over uh, later on in a subsequent session. Um, manage using disturbance, and uh, you may use some of the things that nature does, such as fire and grazing, or we may use our own tools, axes and saws. Um, uh, and then dial in really close and imitate the natural plant communities. Where I'm sitting right here, right now, there's like this brushy edge. There's a McDonald's parking lot and a brushy edge and then the woods. And this brushy edge is down low, has grass. Well, then we've got a ring of raspberries at the base of Staghorn Sumac. Uh, and there's some pin cherry, shrub pin cherry. There's uh, uh, wild, you know, wildling apples growing. And then it goes into maple and beech and white pine. Well, already maple, beech, uh, instead of white pine, let's substitute Korean pine. Apple, uh, cherries, we can do plums. We got sumac, we got raspberries, and grass. Eight different things right here next to a McDonald's parking lot. This is permaculture, and people don't see it. And so I hope you guys start looking at your place differently now and start thinking like an ecologist and thinking like an ecological designer, let's restore natural ecosystem structure and function 
while growing our food, the restoration agriculture. We're going to create things that are eco ecologically sound and economically profitable, the future age of economics. And that's, I think, all I have to say tonight, if you guys can still hear me. We can, and you were amazing. <laughs> you were uh, the last slide. Show the last one, Mark, because uh, maybe they didn't go, they didn't see it before. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, Mark will uh, blow your mind, folks. Um, and then uh, the other thing that I've heard, and I used to say this about myself when I speak, is that I speak at 180 miles an hour with gusts up to 360. So lots of it there. Uh, we, we got one question that I think you answered, but I want to I want to throw it out anyway. Um, which was um, Eric asks uh, now I if, am I correct in saying that apples aren't native to North America but Kazakhstan? If so, how do you make the call to grow them in your systems in the U.S. since you are trying to mimic the biomes that do or have existed in this on the site? Well, here's here's one of the things is uh, crab apples. There are types of crab apples that, from what I've read, are native and have been native here. Um, also, one of the things when we're doing ecosystem mimicry, now this what this is off into a next segment here, not not the very next consecutive segment, but currently right now, I just looked at the at the ditch, literally the ditch on the side of the road here, and I I just described what was here. There are combinations of of woody plants that that live together right now, with sheer total utter neglect and thrive as, as a plant community. These are not described by ecologists because they aren't natural plant communities, but they're real. Other plants that are, uh, are fabulous out there right now that are naturalizing the system, the, the mulberry, the white mulberry, is not native to this continent, and it's all over the place, and it's an amazingly productive plant, uh, and it grows in systems with other plants. Uh, and it fits into the niche approximately, or niche, however you like to say it. I'm a niche guy. It fits into the same niche that the uh, the apples like to fit into, which I mentioned pin cherry here earlier. It fits into that niche. It's kind of a medium, not quite shrub, but not quite tree-sized plant. Um, autumn olive, uh, it's you know very vigorous reproducer. It's a nitrogen fixer. What I've observed about it is it tends to desiccate the soils around the site, so I think it's very water-hungry. Uh, and it also, what I've seen is it, is it takes the same niche as uh, hazelnut. And so there are uh, non-native plants in uh, non-natural assemblages that are just as valid ecologically because here they are right now. And Wisconsin just this year uh, gave us a three-year moratorium. They made mulberries illegal in the state of Wisconsin because they're non-native invasive species. But give me a break. The foliage is more nutritious than alfalfa hay. It comes back year after year. Uh, the berries are one of the highest protein berries you can get, like 3 or 4% protein. This is an amazing plant. Why don't we utilize it to death? If you want to get rid of it, why don't we start, like, you know, you know using mulberries and all of our fruit leathers everywhere, and, and maybe we can cut it down and make fruit leather. Or I suppose people would go plant more and then make fruit leather. Oh, wait a minute. You can do that now, can't you? You can actually make fruit leather out of berries. Wow. So, so that's why one of the reasons why I put apples in the system is because they're here. They're all over the place. I can't deny reality, and I'm looking at it right in front of me right now. Just because it's non-native doesn't mean it doesn't belong here because here it is. Good luck getting rid of it. So I try to work with nature, even though that 
plant was originally, its ancestors were imported here by Europeans. It's native. It's naturalized. I am too. I'm a, I'm a white European. My people haven't been here for a longer period of time than we have been here. Um, we're kind of native. So I hope that, you know, was a gust yeah, to 120. Eric said right on. Yeah, so after your, after your answer there, Mark. Um, if, if you've got other questions, throw them in here. We are over our time, but Mark was awesome. We've got more people on here now than when we did when we started, so people are interested. Um, but if, I don't see any other questions right now. Throw a one up there if you would, everybody, if you like this, just so Mark can look at it and see it. It's, boy, he, one, you know, he one, prepares one for this thing every I, week. I just see about pine, pine barrens. Um, I just noticed that somebody made that little thing about pine barrens. There was a guy. I, put that, uh, I put that site up. Everybody can look at it on the chat, so it's there. Okay. There's there's a guy who uh, worked with me for a while. His name was Patrick Weber. He did his PhD on pine barrens, and uh, what he did is he he got funding for the improvement of upland game bird habitat. And so he designed um, a restoration agriculture of pine barrens, and he showed that with that particular it's an artificial pine barrens. He planted it, and they were harvesting the seeds for sale and human consumption. They got more upland game birds to live there. Patrick Weber was his name. Now, <laughs> now he's actually uh, his kids are probably like ten years old. And he's living in his pine barrens that he created. That's pretty cool. Cool. Well, Mark, as always, you've been great. Everybody, Mark's on the road, and as you heard, he's up in the main area, and we want to kind of let him go here. Um, thank you. We'll be back next week. Um, also, as, as Mark said, and I said earlier, on Tuesday night next week, we'll start a series on chicken farming, natural chicken farming. You're going to be a little shocked with some of the myths that I think will be uh, dispelled. You're going to hear a chicken farmer, Sarah Meyer, who uh, is in her second series of farms, and she'll tell this story, and she's 23 years old. So she's already had another farm that she grew and made enough money that could put her all the way through college at Colorado State University in 18 months. And I know these numbers because she happens to be on my land. Last month, she grossed $10,000 in sales, and she is full-time. That's all she does is, is raise chicken. She doesn't raise money. She doesn't make money from teaching. She doesn't have a part-time job. And you're going to be really excited about what she teaches. Uh, a lot like Mark, there's, not, there's a lot of things that aren't necessarily always the way we thought they were when we've uh, learned them from long ago. So come, that, come to that if you'd like. Replays of this will be up tomorrow, hopefully. Um, I'm get, I hadn't got my replay for Monday night up yet, but it'll be up later tonight. You always can go in and listen to the replays anytime you want. This is free for all of you folks for as long as you want to have it. Literally, I mean, we hope this goes for years. I'm going to say this now, though. We're at about 700 members now. And when we get to about 1,500, which I think it's going to come pretty quickly, it's been five weeks to 700, we're going to start charging for other people, not you. Please listen, you guys get this free. You were the original team members. So keep, keep being engaged. Several people kind of uh, put their hands up. Next week, I think we'll allow people to come on and talk and, and, and maybe right at the start, ask a few questions uh, live. We're going to do a session sometime where we'll just do that. We'll just open it up to you guys. 
Mark, thanks. This was great as always. Thanks to all you guys. Most of you still even hanging out. We'll see you again later. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Roots in the ground. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT Community Podcast.